If you have already been saved by God, is it okay then to just live whatever way? If you've already been saved by God, is it okay just to deliberately sin? If you've already been saved by God, is it okay to wander away from Him? Because once saved, always saved, right? If you're under grace, then doesn't it not matter how you live? Because God will always treat you graciously. If you're under grace, will not God forgive you automatically? If you're a recipient of God's grace, then doesn't it mean you can't just live any way you like? Isn't that right? Or is it? Well, in our passage today, we will see the answer to that question. Our passage today consists of four oracles, our four words of prophecy from God through Ezekiel. And we're going to look at the first three, which we read just now very briefly, and we'll spend most of our time on the fourth one, which is the longest one. Uh, the first oracle, oracle one, is in verses, uh, oh, four, uh, sorry, verses 1 to 11 of chapter 14. Right? It is given to some of the elders of Israel, uh, who are the leaders among the exiles. You'll recall that Ezekiel was one of, the, one of that group of people who were exiled from, uh, is, from Jerusalem, uh, to Babylon, right? The Babylonians came, they captured Jerusalem in a relatively bloodless way uh, and took all these people into exile. A few years after this, the city would rebel against Babylon. The Babylonians would come again and destroy the whole city. But these exiles that Ezekiel was part of was one of the first group of exiles, and there they are in Babylon. And some of the leaders of these exiles, the elders among the people, they come to see Ezekiel. And they want to know God's word because Ezekiel is a prophet. And God spoke to Ezekiel and through Ezekiel, but actually it was a bit of an uncomfortable word. He says in verse 3, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and has set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. They loved idols in their heart and they even kept some. They set them before their faces. And God says, should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? These people are unfaithful to me, and then they come and ask me what I have to say. God is not very happy. And so God tells Ezekiel the message to give to them. And he gives them the message in verse 4. Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart, and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to the prophet, the Lord will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold the heart of the hearts of the house of Israel and all who are strange from me through idols. See, if you love idols in your heart, you keep idols in your house, the Lord will treat you as an idolater. And so what does God say in verse 6? He says, repent, repent and turn away from idols. Don't keep them in your heart. Don't keep them before your face. And if you keep idols and you come to the prophet to consult me through him, I will come against you, God says, I'll make an example of you. And those who were deceived by the false prophets who presumably encouraged them and said, no, no, it's okay, don't worry, they'll be punished for their false prophecy. And they will take a share of that punishment for your idolatry. But the goal of the punishment in verse 11, in the end, is a positive one. 
that the house of Israel won't go astray. They won't defile themselves anymore. And they may be God's people and He will be their God. Uh, so He wants to protect these group of people. My brothers and sisters in Christ, please don't play with idolatry. We know that idols are nothing. We know that. There is only one God. We know that. But if we love idols in our heart, or keep them before us, God hates it. Because these, they, they represent rivals to Him. He calls them abominations. We are meant to be as, as repulsed by them as He is. Don't keep idols in your house, even if they mean nothing to you. Don't keep them as art, don't keep them as decoration, don't keep them for good luck, and certainly don't keep them for worship. If it's in your parents' house, you can't do anything about that, lah. Okay, that's different. Right? But don't keep them in your house. And even more importantly, don't keep them in your heart. Don't love them. God is your God. You are His people. Love God so much that what He hates, you hate. God is your God. You are His people. I don't do anything that He doesn't love. Well, that's the first oracle. Uh, oracle number two is in verses 12 to 23. Uh, again, the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel, and he says what will happen if there's these three men who were known for being so righteous, what if they were in a place that was earmarked for judgment? Right? Maybe this is giving echoes of Abraham's bargaining with God back in Genesis. Well, this is what God says in 14 verse 13. He says, When a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it, and break its supply of bread, and send famine against it, and cut off from it man and beast, and even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. See, if God was bringing judgment upon a place, and you've got these three really, really, really righteous guys, well, they would save their own life, but they won't save anyone else's. And whether the judgment is in this case by famine, or in the example of verse 15 by wild beasts, or verse 17 by the sword, or verse 19 by pestilence, it's the same thing. They'll save their own life, but they're not going to be able to save anyone else. God's not going to spare the place because of them. And how much more, God says, when he punishes Jerusalem with these things. Don't think because there are some righteous people there, God's going to spare the city. He won't. They will just save their own lives, verse 22. There will be some survivors left, and that will be Israel's comfort, knowing that there's going to be a line to go along. God still has plans for her, but God is not going to put on hold his plan to punish Jerusalem just because there's a few righteous people there. Even if it was Daniel and Noah and Job. And when we read that, we are thankful, aren't we? That the righteousness of Jesus is even better than the righteousness of Noah and Daniel and Job. Because Jesus is not just the perfect man, but he's also the infinite God whose death is of infinite worth, and he is able to save all God's people in a way that these men were not. 
His righteousness is able to cover us in the way that these men's righteousness were not, not able to cover anybody else. But at the same time, we're going to see we mustn't take all that for granted. The third oracle, which is chapter 15, is an oracle where God likens Jerusalem to a vine. Now, why do you plant a vine? You plant a vine to get fruit, isn't it? To get the grapes, not to get the wood. When God speaks to Ezekiel, he says, Israel is a vine, but it's only producing wood. And vine wood is pretty useless, except to be burned as fuel. And so God says, I've given Jerusalem over to be burned. I will destroy the land because they've, they've acted faithlessly. And then you will know, he says, that I am the Lord. That is, I am Yahweh. I am the God who keeps my promise to judge as well as my promise to bless. And here was his promise to judge, right back from the Old Testament. They will know that he is Yahweh, the God who keeps his promise. And when we read that, we're reminded, aren't we, of what Jesus said in, in John 15. A very similar, not exactly the same allegory. He said that he is the vine, we are the branches, and we're there to bear fruit. And if we don't bear fruit, it's because we've become disconnected to the vine, and that kind of branch is only fit to be burnt. Same kind of warning coming out from here. But all these warnings come together in the fourth oracle, which is chapter 16. And that's the oracle we're going to concentrate on today. It's an oracle about God's grace to Jerusalem. Now we know the word grace means what? Unmerited favor. Right? It means kindness. It means generosity. It means God treating people the way that we don't deserve. Far, far better than we deserve. You won't find the word grace in the oracle, but if you look carefully, that's what it's all about. In verses 3 to 14, we read about God's grace to Jerusalem. In verses 15 to 34, we read how Jerusalem took God's grace and then basically told him where to stick it. And in verses 35 to 58, we read about God's judgment on Jerusalem for spurting His grace. And then in verses 59 to 63, we read how grace triumphs in the end and God restores His people. So let's look at each one of them in turn. The headings are there in your handout. Right? First of all, God's grace to Jerusalem in verse 3 to 14. God speaks of His grace to Jerusalem by telling them a story. It's not meant to be a historical account of the history of the city. Uh, but it's a story that speaks about God's dealings with them. Uh, there's two scenes in the story. The connection between them are a bit complicated, but it's okay because it's just an allegory. It doesn't have to fit perfectly well internally. It doesn't have to fit perfectly well with lines that we might draw into history. It's a story with a meaning. And as we read it, the meaning is quite clear. In scene one, Jerusalem is like a, a rescued baby. Now God says to Jerusalem in verse 3, your origins and birth were from the land of the Canaanites. As if, it's as if they were your parents. That's the, that's the, that's the area where you came from. Right? And when you were born though, that, they didn't help you. When you were born, verse 4, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. And In other words, you're an abandoned baby. Nobody pitied you, verse 5. Nobody cared for you. It's as if you were born and then left out in the field to die. 
And then I came by, God says in verse 6, I saw you wallowing in your blood and I said, live. And I cared for you and I made you flourish, verse 7. And you lived and you grew and you came to full maturity. That is, that is grace, isn't it? That's God's kindness to a, to a helpless city, to a people who couldn't save themselves and he gave them life. And then scene two, uh, God again rescues the city, but this time the city is depicted now as an adult. Mature, but, but naked and bare, without a proper covering. This time she needs a husband, and so God says in verse 8, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you. In other words, I married you. I washed you clean, I anointed you with oil, I gave you the best clothing, the best food, I covered you with gold and jewelry, placed a beautiful crown on your head. You became my queen. I bestowed upon you such splendor, says the Lord, that your beauty became famous all over the world. That is grace. God was kind to a helpless city, to a people who couldn't save themselves. And not only did he give them life, but he prospered them. He made them into a great and wonderful nation. By the Solomon's time, people all over the world were astounded at the glory of Israel. And friends, if you're a believer, you'll know that this is Scott's character, isn't it? He's been kind to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We had sinful origins. We are sinful from birth. We were helpless and hopeless in our sins, but, but God pitied us. He cared for us. He saw us wallowing in our blood, facing certain death, and He said, live. He gave His Son to die for our sins. He gave us a spirit that we might believe. He adopted us into His family. That is grace. And not only did He do that, but He gave us every spiritual blessing in Christ. Through Him we have forgiveness and election and redemption. And God has made known to us His future plans to bring everything in, under Christ. And we were a helpless people, a people who couldn't save ourselves. And he, he gave us life. And He gave us every spiritual blessing. This is God's character. This is God's grace. Well, how did Jerusalem respond to the grace that God showed them? Well, remember in the story just now, the city gets so famous for her beauty because God has adorned her. Well, God says in verse 15, you trusted in your beauty. Instead of trusting me, you, you trusted in my blessing. You were so famous because of me, you took that fame and you used it to attract other men. With no discernment, just any passerby. Verse 15, and you played the whore with them. In other words, you became a prostitute. The city was meant to be married to God, but they worshipped idols. God calls that spiritual adultery and prostitution. The things God blessed them with, they used for evil. And so God says, the clothes I gave you, verse 16, you made shrines for idols, and you prostituted yourself with them there. The jewels and the gold and silver I gave you, verse 17, you made into idols and you prostituted yourself there. The expensive food I gave you, verse 19, you offered to idols in worship. The children you had born to me, verse 20, my children, verse 21, you sacrificed them to idols. And you did all of this, verse 22, because you did not remember my grace to you in the past. But it didn't stop there. 
In verse 24, you built brothels for your prostitution. That is, places to worship idols all over the place. So you could offer yourself to anyone who came by. You played the prostitute with the Egyptians in verse 26, with the Assyrians in verse 27, with the Chaldeans in verse 29. These were the countries that they made treaties with to help them instead of trusting in God, you see. How sick is your heart, says God. But you know, then God says, actually, you're worse than a prostitute. Because the prostitute rents herself out for money. But you do the opposite. You're a prostitute who's so desperate for business, whose appetite for prostitution is so insatiable, instead of charging your clients, verse 33, you pay them. How sick is that? Jerusalem has spurned God's grace. They did not remember how kind He had been to them. They got caught up in the blessings He had given them, and instead of loving Him and using them to serve Him, they used them for idolatry. They worshipped and served other gods. They found their security in alliances with other nations instead of in God's protection. They took on the practices of the nations, gross idolatry, even child sacrifice. God had been so gracious to them, but they trampled that grace underfoot and spurned the love that God had shown them. Well, what is God going to do about this ungrateful prostitute city? That's the next section, God's judgment, verses 35 to 38. God says, verse 37, I will get your lovers and disgrace you in front of them. In other words, the nations that Jerusalem make treaties with, they will see her ruined. I will, verse 38, judge you as adulterers and murderers are judged. That is capital punishment. I'll hand you over to the nations who will take away the clothes and jewels I have given you and leave you naked and bare. They will be, they will be ransacked, pillaged. And as adulterers and murderers are stoned, they will come in and stone you, verse 40. Kill the people in you and burn, their, burn your houses, verse 41. I will punish you until my wrath is satisfied, verse 42, and my anger is calmed. Because you have acted just like the Canaanite nations from whence you came. You are worse than your sisters. The other major cities in the area, Samaria to the north, Sodom to the south, and I punished and destroyed those cities, but you're worse. And so I will punish you, God says, for your lewdness and abominations. Friends, God takes sin very seriously, doesn't He? He takes it very personally. If we are God's people, then we are His bride. You see, sin is not just something that's not very good. Sin is not just breaking a law. Right? If you break the law in the country, the judge might send you to jail, but it's nothing personal. Right? The judge is not offended by your actions. It's just, here's the law, you broke the law, you go to jail. But when we sin, yes, we're legally wrong, but our offense is actually even bigger than that because it is a personal betrayal of the God who loves us. When we sin, it is a personal betrayal of the God who loves us. When we wander away from God, we're not just impoverishing our spiritual lives. We're ignoring the one who made us and loved us and sacrificed for us. 
When we commit idolatry in any form, we're not just breaking a couple of commandments, number one, number two. We are spitting in the face of the one who gave us those commandments in love. When we get into idolatry, we are committing spiritual adultery with false gods. You cannot be unfaithful to your spouse and say, oh, that's nothing personal. And you cannot be unfaithful to God and say that either. Sin is personal. Sin grieves God's spirit. Sin makes him angry, not in spite of his love, but because of it. If God didn't love Jerusalem, he wouldn't be angry with her, would he? Now, the opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is indifference. God loves Jerusalem. And he is passionately angry about her prostitution. He will punish justly and impartially as the perfect judge, and yet with the passion of a betrayed lover. Now, you and I wouldn't be able to hold those two things together, would we? Right? Because we're sinful. God can, because he's perfect. And he does. Sin is never just impersonal. Sin is offensive to the one who loves us. Section 3, no, the next section, section 4, I think. The triumph of God's grace in the end. You see, in spite of Jerusalem's sin, and in spite of the punishment that is coming, the punishment that they deserve, God says that He will show grace to them again. Look what He says in verse 59 to 60. Thus says the Lord, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath and breaking the covenant, God's going God's to judge them for, for, for breaking their covenant with Him. Yet, verse 60, Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. God will remember the covenant He made with them in the days of their youth, back in Moses' time. And one of the things that God promised in Deuteronomy was that, actually God knew that they were going to break the covenant. And God promised that beyond that punishment for breaking the covenant, beyond them being destroyed from the land, He would show grace to them again. He would circumcise their hearts so that they would be able to, believe, to, to, to obey. And that was that first hint of the new covenant. And here God promises that He will remember that covenant that He made before and He is going to establish a new permanent everlasting covenant with them in the future. At this point, the people of Ezekiel's day would have no idea how is he going to establish that covenant with them. But we do. Because God did that when Jesus died on the cross and rose again and poured out his spirit. The death of Jesus was the blood that sealed that everlasting covenant. And all this happened where? Jerusalem, isn't it? That city. And so the true Jews, the people of Jerusalem, are those who, who believe in Jesus. They were the beneficiaries, first of all, of that covenant. And then when the gospel spread, it went to the Samaritans, which represent the northern kingdom of Israel, which Israel was divided north and south. 
And then it went to the Gentiles, which is represented here by Sodom, isn't it? And God brought them in and, and made them part of that kingdom, which was initially just for the Jewish believers represented by Jerusalem. Which is why in verse 61, your sisters, which was earlier we saw were Sodom and Samaria, are now considered Jerusalem's daughters. They come under her. They come part of her, you see. And God says in verse 62, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. God is going to be gracious to them again. He will pay the price for their forgiveness, whether from Jerusalem or from the, sister, the daughters from Samaria or Sodom. It's because at the end of verse 63, he says, I will atone for you for all you have done, declares the Lord. God would atone for the sins of his people. God would, well, how would he do that? People of Ezekiel's day would have no idea, isn't it? But we know. Because again, this points forward to the death of Jesus. Jesus would die to take the sins of the daughter of Jerusalem and the daughters of Jerusalem on himself. He would atone for their sins to make them right with God. In Jesus God would deal with our sin and his wrath against it. He, the judge, would, would take the punishment for, for, for Jerusalem and her daughters, the guilty sinners. But not just him, the judge, him, the betrayed husband, absorbs his own anger for his adulterous spouse so that she can be forgiven and taken back. And brothers and sisters, who trust in Jesus, that is where we join the story. We, we weren't there in the story where God first showed His grace to Jerusalem. We weren't there when, God was, when Jerusalem was taking God's grace and spitting in God's face. We weren't part of the suffering of the exile and all that. But we are part of the restoration and the new covenant because we are the Gentiles, represented by Sodom, who have now become the daughters of Jerusalem. And we have come to share in the grace of the new covenant. And you and I are beneficiaries of this grace. This grace that triumphs in the end. Because Jesus atoned not just for the sins of Jerusalem, but for our sins, to make us right with God. In Jesus, God dealt with our sin, everything that we have done, and His own wrath against it. He, the judge, took the punishment for us, but not just as the judge, the betrayed husband absorbed his own anger against us, his adulterous spouse. Because it's not just Jerusalem that has rebelled against him. Their sin points to the sin of the rest of humanity. And because of Jesus, we are forgiven and taken back. We are given God's Spirit. We are part of God's people. Grace triumphs in the end, not just for Jerusalem, but we are included as well. Isn't that wonderful? And why does God show Jerusalem and her daughters such grace? What's the point of the exercise and saving them that way? Well, God says, when I do this, verse 62, you will know that I am the Lord. You will know that I am Yahweh. You will know my character not only as judge, but also as Savior. You will see my justice and love perfectly meeting. You will know that I am Yahweh. 
who keeps his promise to restore as well as to judge. And furthermore, God says that he will establish his covenant, verse 63, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you and what you have done. In other words, God, they won't be able to complain about God's punishment on Jerusalem. They won't be able to complain. Again, the people of Ezekiel's day won't, wouldn't know how God was going to God's covenant and God's atonement would cause them to be so ashamed they'll shut their mouths and stop complaining about the punishment they suffer. But, but we do. Because as we look back, we realize how we look at the cross and we see the atonement that He actually made for us. We see the price that God paid in order to forgive us. Then we wouldn't complain about the punishment anymore because we know that His punishment is fair. He Himself bore the brunt of it. And even more importantly, we know that it's dealt in love because he who punishes us is the one who atones for our sins. The greater the punishment we see meted out, the more horrific and great we see that sin is. And the greater and, the great and, more, the greater and more horrific we realize sin is, the greater and more horrific the greater we realize was the suffering that God the Son bore on the cross in order to pay for it. And the greater the suffering we realize that God the Son bore on the cross in order to pay for it, the greater we realize how much He loves us. And we shut our mouths to complaining. But you look at the punishment of Jerusalem, you realize sin is pretty serious. And we look at the cross, we see it is even more serious than we thought. But the God who takes sin seriously is the God who has loved us, is born that sin. And when we realize how big sin is, then we also realize how big His love is and how big His grace is. Well, brothers and sisters, we've seen in this passage how God was so gracious to Jerusalem. We've seen how they spurn God's grace. And we see the punishment that God is going to mete out as a response. And we've seen how grace triumphs in the end. And how we have received God's grace as part of that blessing. But now let me ask us to think together. How are we responding to the grace that we have been shown? Israel back there did not remember God's grace. That's why they acted the way they did. Do we remember God's grace? Do we appreciate God's generosity? Do we marvel at His kindness to us sinners? Do we give thanks to Him and love Him in return and therefore obey Him? Or are we like Jerusalem who took His grace for granted and ignored Him? Deliberately chose to sin against him because they thought it was okay. They were his people. We must not think that just because we are under the new covenant, where sins are forgiven, that it's safe to do that. Listen to the sobering words from our New Testament reading today. Come with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. It's on page 1210. 
writer the Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians who are tempted in time of persecution to, to give up on Jesus and to go back just to Judaism. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying, don't do that. Verse 26 he says, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remaining a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. But how much more do you think will be deserved by one who has spurned the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. You see, the grace God showed to us in Jesus is far, 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 far bigger than the grace of the Old Testament. And if we take that grace and spit it back in God's face, can you imagine how terrible that is? If you think it's okay to go on deliberately sinning because you're under grace, then, then please think again. If you think it's okay to wander off from Jesus and because you've already been saved, well, please think again. If you think it's okay to worship other gods in addition to Jesus, then please think again. If you think it's okay to find your security in things other than in Him, then, then please think again. If you think it's okay to, to use the blessings that God gives you for, for evil, then please think again. Take heed of the warnings that Ezekiel gave to Jerusalem who spurned God's grace. Take heed of the warnings that the writer of the Hebrews gives to the Jewish Christians who are thinking of going back into Judaism and just leaving Jesus behind. Because if we spurn God's grace, if we spit in His face, if we turn away from Him, it is worse now. Not better, it's worse than if we did that in the time of Ezekiel. Because the covenant we have is so much better. We have the Son of God. We have His death on the cross. We have the Spirit of grace. We have Jesus Christ as the only one who can save us. And if we snub the Son, if we despise His cross, if we outrage His Spirit, we are in a worse position than the people of Jerusalem who are ungrateful for a lesser grace. And if they were judged for spurning His grace, how much more? will we face God's judgment for spurning the grace that is far, far greater? We would be in grave danger of being like those branches that are thrown into the fire and burned. So remember God's grace. Remember His kindness to us in Jesus. Repent. Turn from sin. Go back to the cross. Be thankful for the righteousness of Jesus, which is better than the righteousness of all these other guys that actually covers us. Be thankful for the atonement that He made for us so that we can be in the new covenant and live lives of thankfulness for the grace that He has shown us in Jesus Christ.
finally, we've heard a lot of warnings from the scriptures today. How do the warnings fill in with being under grace? Well, if we are really under grace, if we are really one of those people whom God has chosen to be saved, then we will listen to these warnings, these very real warnings that God gives us. And therefore, we will not fall away from Jesus. Or if we have sinned, God will bring us to repentance through warnings like these. And grace will triumph in our lives in the end. Otherwise, we're not being really under grace at all and have been fooling ourselves all along. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That we might be equipped for every good work. We thank you that your word gives us words of encouragement as well as words of warning. And we thank you for the words of warning that we have received from your word today. We thank you that you warn us because you love us. We thank you that you warn us because you don't want any of us to perish. We thank you that you use these warnings to keep us and to preserve us so that we continue to stand in your grace and we'll be with you at the end. And so we ask, Heavenly Father, that your Spirit will be searching our hearts and that your spirit will enable us to take these warnings seriously and that your spirit will be convicting us and correcting us and training us. May we be people who appreciate the warnings that you give us and correct our lives accordingly. Thank you for the triumph of grace in Israel's history. Even when they turned away from you. Thank you for the way that you fixed that through Jesus. Thank you for the way that you brought us in under your grace. Through the atonement that came through Jesus. And help us we pray to so appreciate your grace and so appreciate you that we love you and we do not want to sin because, because we know that sin is offensive to you. Help us not to take sin lightly but to remember how, how serious it is and to know that it's serious because of you. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.